The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com. Well, we are uh, continuing in our series, The Story, here. And uh, in the story, we've kind of been looking at how God, of course, created the earth, and he created it good, and then humanity rebelled. And we've looked at kind of the first part of his plan to redeem that good creation, and that all sort of centers around this nation of Israel. And so we looked at their origin, uh, where they were, uh, they were created through this man named Abraham. And then we looked at their deliverance from slavery through a man named Moses. And then last week, we looked at their conquest of this land that God promised them, the promised land, uh, through a man named Joshua. And so now as we've been following along the story of the children of Israel, uh, what we've seen is they, they've, they've got their own turf now, right? They, they've got their own land. They're, they're homeowners. But what we see is that homeownership isn't easy, Right? I know nothing about it, but from what I understand, it's not easy. Uh, They've got enemies, the Israelites do, that are constantly on their doorstep. But the thing with Israel is they should be okay. Like, that shouldn't be an issue because they don't actually have a government right now. They don't have a a political system to get in the way and mess things up. God is their king right now. They're they're literally living in a theocracy. God God will maybe have a representative, but it's just kind of whatever he says, they do. That's how it works. But the book of Judges is this incredibly graphic book because the Israelites continually turn to false gods. Instead of just saying, God's our king, we're going to listen to him, we're going to live in his peace, they continually turn away from him and live in false gods. And so God sends judges to help them out. And so if you've ever found the Bible to be boring, can I tell you, you obviously haven't read the book of Judges. Like, it is crazy. Crazy. You got ladies driving tent stakes into guys' temples. Uh, you, got, uh, you got dudes getting whooped, on, whooped up on by the jawbone of a donkey. There's a, a, a dead person that gets cut up into pieces and sent around the known world, right? Like, it reads a lot less like a children's book and a lot more like a Quentin Tarantino movie, right? Like, it is just crazy. Crazy book. And the reason this book is so graphic is because it follows this pattern. It follows this pattern where the children of Israel turn to an idol. And when they turn to an idol, a foreign nation invades them. And then they realize, oh man, we are in hard times here. I guess we better ask God to help us out. So then they ask God to help us out. And then God raises up a judge, someone who's going to help deliver them from these foreign invaders. And they get saved. They get get delivered. But then, (laughs) like one chapter later, they'll fall back into idol worship again and they'll turn away from the true God and the entire cycle repeats itself. And so one of the themes we see in Judges is that whenever you have idolatry, you have destruction. Whenever you have idolatry, you have destruction. And where we're at in our text for today that we just read is is the people of Israel have fallen into idolatry again. And they're worshiping the, the Canaanite god Baal, or Baal, if you're in Hebrew class, but we're not. So we're going to say Baal. And, um, and, and a result of their idolatry is, is that another nation, the Midianites, have, have overrun their land. They've destroyed their crops and their livestock. And they've actually forced the Israelites to move into the mountains and basically just live in these caves. They're just sort of hiding out in these caves while these Midianites kind of take all their crops, take all their livestock. And so finally, they cry out to God and they say, God, save us from the Midianites. And so we're at this point in the story where the people of Israel are both physically and spiritually devastated. They're physically and spiritually devastated. But God raises up a new judge in our text. This guy who's going to lead them out of this spiritual and physical despair. 
and he calls a man named Gideon. And what we see in God's call of Gideon is we see three truths about how God works in our lives, all right? Three truths about how God works in our lives. First of all, we see that God's call comes to the unworthy. Secondly, we see that God's command goes to the ill-equipped. And thirdly, we see that God's presence destroys idols. Okay, God's call comes to the unworthy. God's command goes to the ill-equipped. God's presence destroys idols. Um, so look with me. Uh, God's call comes to the unworthy. Look with me at verses 13 to, 11 to 13. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. All right. So let's just summarize this text real quick. We got Gideon, and he's beating some wheat, and it says that he's in a wine press. And why is he in a wine press? Because he's hiding from the Midianites, right? He doesn't want these guys to come and steal his wheat, and so he's hiding out, and he's, I don't know what it looks like to beat wheat, but that's, that's what he's doing. And, and the angel of the Lord appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Now, let's think about the irony of this situation, right? Like, he's being a total wimp, right? He's hiding out from his enemies, and the angel calls him a mighty man of valor. What's going on there? Well, in the words of uh, the uh, French postmodern philosopher Jacques Derrida, language creates reality. Language creates reality. And so what happens is this angel of the Lord, this representative of God, is speaking the truth into existence. He's creating a, a new reality with his words. See, right now Gideon is, is very clearly a wimp, right? He's done nothing that justifies calling him a mighty man of valor. But the angel of the Lord proclaims to him a truth that he's going to live into. Proclaims him a truth that he's going to live into. And see, if you're parents, you get how this works, right? You get how this works. So I've... Um, my little boy Titus, right, two years old, and, uh, and, and I, I always tell him that he's really good at cleaning up his toys. I'm like, oh, Titus, you're so good at cleaning up your toys. Here's the thing, on his own, he's terrible at it, right? I mean, like, you look at my house right now, it's a mess, right? He's, he's not good at it on his own. But when it's time to clean the toys, I'll be like, oh, Titus, I know you're such a good helper. You're so good at cleaning up. You're, you love doing it, Right? Probably doesn't love doing it. Doesn't matter. I'm speaking the truth into existence, right? And he's going to live into it. Make sense? Parents get that, right? Language creates reality. And so this is what the angel of the Lord is doing to Gideon. He's saying, mighty man of valor, this is a truth that you're going to live into. You see, and that's what God does. Is he speaks a truth into our lives that we live into. His language creates reality. And see, that's what he does when he calls us to faith in Jesus. I don't know if you know this. This is uh, what we call in theological circles imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. That, that even though we're, we're people who are riddled with sin, who are broken, who make mistakes, who mess up, 
because of Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross, because he's righteous, because he's perfect, when we trust in him, when we put our faith in him, God declares us righteous. He says in that moment, his righteousness is transferred onto you. His righteousness is imputed onto you. God speaks that into reality. And so let me be clear. If you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, understand that God has declared you righteous. That he says you're set apart. That he says you're his child. That he says you're his workmanship. He's declared you holy right now. Right now. And you may not always live into that truth. You may not always feel that truth. You may not feel worthy of that truth. But he's declared you holy. God's call comes to the unworthy. I mean, look at this text, right? Gideon is a weakling. In verse 13, he's essentially faithless. And yet the angel of the Lord says to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. God's call comes to the unworthy. And see, the same is true for each of us who've been declared right in Jesus. That God has come to us when we were our most unworthy. And so let me say this, if you're here and you're not a Christian, and you say, well, I I could never be a Christian because I'm just not good enough. Can I tell you that is 100% missing the point. 100% missing the point. No one is, right? We're all unworthy. But because of Jesus, God declares us righteous. He speaks that into existence over your life. He claims you as his own. And so don't let your moral failings get in the way of what God's declared you to be in Jesus. God's call comes to the unworthy. But not only that, his command goes to the ill-equipped. Look with me at verses 14 through 16. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. All right, so let's just summarize where we're at here. So the angel of the Lord shows up, says, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon says, well, listen, if God is with us, why is all this going on? Why are we being oppressed by our enemies? Can't he do something? And I love the angel's response to Gideon, because what does he say? He says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. So Gideon says, God, why won't you do something? Why won't you save us? Why won't you send someone to deliver us? And the angel of the Lord says, why don't you do it? Why don't I send you? Right? I love that. I love that because it teaches us a really important truth. God delivers through his people. Do you hear that, church? God delivers through his people. And see, I love that response because it fits really nicely with the philosophy that we have here at Acts Church Lander. Uh, And the philosophy is this. uh, We don't do good ideas. We only do great ideas. Okay, some of you have maybe heard me talk about this ad nauseum, uh, but it bears repeating, all right? We don't do good ideas. We only do great ideas. And so this is how this works. A good idea is someone comes up to me and says, 
Pastor, you know, the, the church really needs a men's ministry. Someone should start a men's ministry. Isn't that a good idea? My response? Just so you know if you do this. Uh, that's a good idea. That's a really good idea. Too bad we don't do good ideas. We only do great ideas. You know what would be a great idea? Is if you started a men's ministry. You see the difference there? Okay? You understand that? Right? See, so often we, we call to God and we say, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you help these people? Why don't you do something to, to reach the world? And God says, look at your own two hands. Do something with them. But see, all too often we respond like our boy Gideon here. And we say, whoa, whoa, what can I do? What can I do? I'm like, I'm the weakest of the weak. My tribe is small. I'm the least in my family. But through the angel, God says to him, and he says to you, hey, I'm going to be with you. Hey, I'm sending you. You're going to get it done. I am with you. And can I tell you, I think about this for our church, and I was kind of just reading through this story in light of, of where we're at as Axe Leander, and I feel like sometimes we've got a lot that God's called us to, that, that, that if you will, the Midianites are, are surrounding us, and God's saying, hey, get going. Uh, I just want to share a little bit for you of, of why I feel that way. So if you're a person who's got like an analytical brain, uh, this will be the one sermon of mine you ever enjoy. Uh, and and so I'm just going to throw some numbers at you. Um, so some of you may be familiar with the term nuns, uh, N-O-N, which stands for non-religious. Okay, so, so it means that, that like in, when sociological researchers ask a question, say, hey, what's your religious affiliation? They just say, not, I don't have one. And, and so it's, they're not necessarily atheists or agnostic or anything like that, but they're, they're just not connected to, to any religion at all. And anyways, uh, that number is very much on the rise. And uh, the Barna Group is a group that explores um, specifically the religious uh, expression of people in North America. And they, they recently just came out with some new numbers on, on the nuns. Uh, they call it churchlessness, okay, churchlessness. And so these are folks who either never or extremely infrequently have anything to do with church. And this is in North America, uh, specifically the United States and Canada. And so let me just show you a few of those numbers. So churchlessness, in the 90s, that was about 30% of the population. 2000s, moved up to 33%. 2014, that was 43% of the population would say, no, I'm not really connected to any sort of religious affiliation at all. 43%. So that's, that's almost half the population, right? But then we see that it's actually generationally. So if we go to the next one, we see that, that elders, of, of elders, of people born before 1945, 28% of them would say, uh, I'm, I'm not religious. Of the boomers, 35% of them would say, I'm not religious. Busters, also known as like Gen X, uh, they would say, not religious, 40%. Millennial, or mosaics or millennials, 48% would say that. So very nearly half would say, I'm not, I'm not really connected to church at all. Okay, right? Now, I'm no expert on statistics, but this is a little heavy, right? Let me throw some more numbers at you. Uh, the average size church in North America is 75 people. 75 people is the average size church in North America. 4,400 churches close their doors every year. 4,400 close their doors every year. 77 churches close their door every week. So that means 77 churches this Sunday, some guys up here saying, hey, it's been a great run, folks, but we're done. Gospel's not gonna be proclaimed in this place anymore. Doors are closing. 77 people today, 77 churches, that's happened. 
And you say, well, big deal, there's a lot of churches. 85% of churches in North America are plateaued or declining. Okay? Now let me get to some Austin-specific. Sir, is this your first time clicking? You got like the granddaddy of them all. I normally have like four slides, so way to go. Um, Sorry, we're back in. Uh, So uh, Lifeway Research, another sociological research group, did some Austin-specific numbers. Let me just share some of those with you. In Austin, 140 people roughly move in every day. Some studies say 130, some say 150, so let's go in the middle. 17% of those are connected to the local church. Okay, 17% are connected to the local church. And then we look in the U.S., for every 10,000 people, there's 11 churches. In Austin area, for every 10,000 people, there's four churches. There's four churches. Do you know how many churches we would need to plant just to keep up with our below average average with the amount of people that come in? Do you know how many we would have to do? Seriously, does anyone? Because I can't do the math on that. Like, it's really, it's beyond my fingers, okay? So if you figure it out, let me know. But it's a lot. And someone may say, all right, well, fine, Pastor, but that's just those, those hippies down in Austin, you know, not like us folk out here in Wilco, Williamson County. 62% of people said, no, they don't trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. 62% of people said that. And then, just a, a social justice side of things, because we as the church also care about that, the number one city in the country for poverty growing in the suburbs is Austin is Austin. Now, you pile up all those numbers and it's kind of intimidating, right? Right? And, and the thought crosses my mind for, for us as a church and I say, well, well, what can we do? Right? Like, we're not even two years old yet as a church. We meet in a school gym and we're all excited because we're moving to a storefront. Right? Like, I haven't been a pastor for even three years. Like, like, what are we going to do? Like, we are the, the weakest in Manasseh. We're the least in our family. But God says to us, do not I send you. And he says to us, am not I with you? Don't I send you? Aren't I with you? And so by faith, we've said as a church that we want to start changing some numbers that we want to launch two new church plants in 2016. And that on August 24th of this year, 2015, we're going to launch a free child care center for teen moms so that they can finish up their school and break up generational poverty. And someone may say, well, that's all well and good for the church to do, Gabe. But, but what's that got to do with me? Right? Like, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a church professional, I'm not equipped to do anything about all those numbers you listed. What does that have to do with me? Everything. Everything. See, God's commands are for the ill-equipped. Like, God's not looking for superheroes. He's looking for faithful people. He's looking for the people in his church to be faithful where they're called, where he's placed them. I met with a lady earlier this week who's relatively new to our church. And and she said to me, she said, Pastor, what can I do? What do you want me to do? what's, What's something I can do to help the church out? And I just said, be present. Just be present. 
Join us for worship. Volunteer at worship. Join a small group. Participate in our sending activities. Serve where you're gifted. It's like really simple. Like God's not looking for rock stars. He's just looking for faithful people. But you realize if we just did that, if we were all just like kicking it on the basics, you know what that would do? This place would blow up in the best way possible. People have responded to God's call in Christ and are simply present for him to work through. Man, that's the local church. That's the stuff that changes these numbers. The the local church is the instrument that God has designed to save the world. This, people gathered in a gym. That's the instrument God's designed to save the world. And we say, that just seems crazy. Yeah, but look at how God works. Look at Gideon, right? He's, he's a bashful, idol-worshipping naysayer. But if you know his story, God ultimately delivers the entire nation of Israel from the Midianites through Gideon. But before he does that, God has him do one thing that's very important. It's very important for us too. God has him destroy an idol. The same is true for us. Look with me at verses 25 through 27. That night the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Now see what happens here is the story shifts. Is that Gideon goes from talking to the angel of the Lord to talking to God himself. To being in God's presence. And God's presence leads him to destroy his father's idol and then replace it with an altar to the true God. Now recognize how big this is. The the idols that God tells him to destroy were Baal and uh, Asherah. Those were the gods of fertility. And this isn't just fertility in the sense of like having babies, though that was part of it and was a really big deal in the ancient world. It was fertility in the sense of like crops and livestock. Like they were the gods you went to if you wanted to be successful. They were the gods you went to to get stuff from. And so people tried to please them, tried to do whatever they could. And God says to Gideon, he says, hey, destroy those people. Destroy the gods that you're trying to get something from and pursue me for my sake. Don't pursue me just to get something from me. I don't work like that. Pursue me for my sake. And we see that's what Gideon does. He destroys these idols. I mean, he's kind of a wuss about it. He does it that night, but, but he does it. And what's amazing is that we see after he gets this idol out of his life, God uses him to take only 300 men to clear out an entire army. Now just think, imagine what God would do if we cleared out the idols in our hearts. Imagine what God would do if we cleared out the idols in our church. I was thinking about this the other day. I was driving around. Uh, just just working through some like insecurities and uncertainties that I have in, in my life and in my own you know kind of personal journey i'm I'm a human being and um, and and so like I'm, I'm journeying through this and I was asking myself I was like Gabe like why is this stuff bothering you I was like I, I was kind of stepping back getting perspective and I was like this is just stupid like if anyone else was whining about this to you you'd just be like 
get over it. You know, like it's not that big of a deal. I said, but why is it bogging me down so much? And it hit me. I was like, it's because this stuff matters so much to me because Christ is not the top spot in my heart right now. Because where I stand with God is not number one in my heart right now. Instead, what is is how successful I am or how cool people think I am or or how other people perceive me. That trumps how God sees me. Does that happen to anyone else ever? Okay, glad to know I'm not the only sinner. Um, And can I tell you, like, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. That's putting something in the place where only God should be. That's idolatry, putting something in place where only God's to be. See, so often we're self-aware and we're thinking about ourselves and how we feel about ourselves. And so often we're other people aware. We're worried about what other people are thinking about us and how they see us. And so seldom are we God aware. So seldom are we aware of where we stand before him. So rarely is that the predominant thought in our lives. But we see the trick to destroying idols in our life is actually coming into his presence, is being God-aware, is recognizing his presence. And so Gideon destroys his family's idol. He responds to God's call, but it's only after this happens in verses 23 and 24. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. You see, God's presence destroys idols and it brings peace. And someone may say to me, well, well Gabe, I, I don't sense his presence. And so I don't have his peace. And so I guess what you're saying is that idols still control my life. And so what do I do about that? How does that change? God delivers through his people. God delivers through his people. In particular, God delivers through a person. Through the person of Jesus Christ. See, until Jesus has the top spot in your heart, other things will always grab a hold of it. Until he has the top spot, other things will always grab a hold of it. But if you can see that in Jesus, God has brought you fully into his presence, that because of Jesus, you're able to stand before God completely free, completely who you are, completely loved. If you can grasp that, that's number one for you. The idols start to fall. And someone may say, well, how do I do that? You go all in. You trust in Jesus completely. You put your complete faith in him. That brings you into God's presence. You see, you trust in Jesus not because it helps you be more moral, not because it gives you that little spiritual enlightenment that you need. No, no, no. You trust in Jesus because of who he is and who he is alone. Let me close here. Um, Elizabeth Elliot tells a uh, fictitious parable about Peter and Jesus. So this isn't in the Bible, it's fictitious, but, but it goes like this. Uh, so Jesus and his disciples are walking around and Jesus says to his disciples, hey, uh, pick up a rock and carry it for a while. So you know, they pick up a rock and Peter's like, what is this about? And he's like, I don't want to carry around a rock. So he just picks up this little pebble. So they're walking around and Peter's got his pebble and they finally they sit down somewhere and they sit down and Jesus says, all right, well, let's eat. And I said, Jesus, where's the food? 
And, uh, and he says, look down. And they look down, and the rocks that they've been carrying around have turned into food. Amazing. But the food's only as big as the rock you were carrying, right? So Peter's just got his little morsel here. You know, so he eats it. And, uh, and then they get up, and they start walking again. And, and Jesus says, hey, carry a rock again. Peter's all excited. He's like, oh, I know how this works, right? And so he just gets this big honking boulder, and he's carrying this around for miles and miles, and his, his back is aching, but he knows it's going to be worth it. And, and, and so they, they sit down, and, and they put their rocks down, and Jesus says, all right, let's get going again. And they walk away from the rocks, and Peter's like, what's going on? And Jesus looks at him and says to him, so why were you carrying the rock, Peter? Were you carrying it for me? Or for you? Why were you carrying the rock? See, so often we miss out on Jesus' presence. We miss out on his peace because we treat him as a means to an end instead of the end in and of himself. And so let me encourage you this morning. If you're going to live into the call of God in your life, if you're going to be present for his commands, let Jesus take the top place in your heart. Pursue him for his sake. He brings deliverance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for my friends, for my friends gathered here this morning. God, I pray for, for any idols in their lives that, that your presence would lead them to just destroy them. Your presence would be so real to them, that Jesus would be so real to them that, that everything else just pales in comparison. God, help us to recognize your call. Help us to live into your commands. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.